Suicide Awareness Month, and sadly, there's a lot we need to be aware of. According to the CDC, suicide is the 10th leading cause of death in the U.S., with a 35% rise in the suicide rate between 1999 and 2018. Much of the awareness campaigns have traditionally centered around decreasing the stigma around suicide and getting people to feel safe to open up if they're struggling and to encourage friends and loved ones to speak up if they're worried. These are important steps and we as a society have a lot of work to do in those areas. But what we don't often think about is the quality of care our suicidal friend or family member gets once they enter treatment. As a family member whose parents struggle with mental illness, I remember the absolute relief I felt when my loved one was finally hospitalized after I worried about him for months, or how happy I was when he went back on a medication that made him better, but that he was reluctant to take. I always felt like he was in good hands in terms of his professional care. Of course, as a psychologist myself, I had the advantage of knowing what good treatment looked like, but not everyone gets good care. I wanted to start out today's show with a tragic example of what can happen when a person suffering from mental illness doesn't get the care he needs. Here's a summary of what happened according to a watchdog report released by the VA Office of the Inspector General. In early 2019, a veteran in his 60s came to the hospital's emergency room with a long history of panic attacks, prescription drug dependence, seizures, osteoarthritis, and multiple other medical concerns. He complained of medication withdrawal after running out of his prescriptions and said he was unable to sleep and had suicidal thoughts. He wanted to be admitted to detox from the prescription medication he was on, which included strong painkillers. The ER doc acknowledged the patient's desire to be admitted, but recommended that he be seen by an outpatient psychiatrist first. The vet and his family were unhappy with the recommendation, but they went along with it, and he showed up for the same-day outpatient psychiatry appointment. The outpatient psychiatrist found the veteran was at moderate risk for suicide, recommended he be admitted to the hospital, and escorted him back to the emergency room. Now, at this point, the vet's family went home, assuming their loved one was going to be admitted. However, he was then handed off several more times to other medical staff at the hospital, one of whom said he thought the suicide risk was mild and recommended discharge to an outpatient mental health clinic. When the patient was told of his pending discharge and referral, which included no information about the clinic or when or how to get an appointment, he refused to leave. At this point, a second physician from the emergency department accused the man of ranting and malingering, which is kind of a fancy word for faking, and called the VA police to remove him from the hospital. At least three staff members, two VA police officers and a physician assistant, reported hearing the ER doctor shout, the patient can go shoot himself, I do not care. Eventually, the veteran was picked up by a family member and left the hospital. Six days later, a family member of the veteran called the hospital's medical advice line and told a nurse the man had died at home of a self-inflicted gunshot wound. Welcome to The Forensic Psychologist and today's show on suicide and malpractice. While the story I just told you was an extreme example, our guest today says that his entire legal practice consists of family members of people who received substandard mental health care and eventually committed suicide. I'd like to introduce today's guest, attorney Skip Simpson. Welcome to the show, Skip. Thank you, Joni. We're delighted to have you. You see a lot of families, I would imagine, who are just devastated 
I do. By the loss of a loved one. I mean, I can only imagine that. What, in your experience, is the impact of a suicide on the surviving family members? Well, it's, it's horrible because it's, uh, first of all, often it's unexpected and it's sudden. And also the family members that call me believe or have, they're wondering whether or not there was negligence involved, but it was in their head that this was preventable. So when you have those three things that come together, it creates an enormous amount of grief and there's no other grief like that. And you know, that's got to be so difficult for you as an attorney to sort through. I mean, I get calls from a forensic point of view sometimes from family members who say something like, my sister committed suicide, but I think it's murder. I think this person was murdered. And I want you to do a psychological autopsy to see if what you think. And of course, there can be all kinds of answers and there's all kinds of issues of whether that could be admitted in court, et cetera, et cetera. But the bigger picture is, it's so difficult, I think, for family members to accept when a person has committed suicide. And of course, we also know that there are times when law enforcement can lock on to this is a suicide without investigating and looking at other options. But just from a purely a suicide point of view, when family members come to you, it, I mean, how do you sort through that in terms of, okay, this is just a family member who is so devastated that they just refuse to believe that, that nobody's to blame here? Versus, yeah, this is really a horrible situation and there was a lot of negligence here. Well, before any case, I say a quick prayer, you know, for God to help me out on this thing. And so I, try, so I have a lot of empathy. I listen to what they have to say. And I know that they feel horrible about what's happened. And everyone uh, blames himself one way or another and they don't know who to blame. I try to explain to them why it is that someone dies from suicide. And I use a a metaphor, at least I've started doing this in the last couple of years, a metaphor of a person on a chinning bar, hanging onto the chinning bar, and he is hanging over a pit of alligators. So there's a pit of alligators underneath him. And he knows that if he lets go, that there's gonna be immediate death. And he doesn't want to let go. And he's hoping that something will happen. Maybe someone will come by and get him off the chinning bar. Maybe someone will do something to give him hope. But the main thing you want to do is get off of that chinning bar. Well, if no one comes by, if there's not a, a, a loved one, if there's not mental health, if there's not police, if there's not someone that gives this person hope, then they can only hang on so long until they let go. And I tried to, to couch it in such a way that it's not an intentional act. It's not something that they want to do, that people are ambivalent about suicide. One moment they want to die and maybe 10 minutes later they don't. This isn't something that they wanted to do. They just couldn't hang on anymore. And people tell me later on that that does give them comfort and give them peace of mind. And it also fits in with my way of thinking about suicide is that it's not really a voluntary thing that they do. It certainly looks like it. I mean, it looks like someone put a gun to their head or did something to cause their death. That part's true. But the part that 
were they in the frame of mind that that's really what they wanted to do? You know, I was reading up on you before our interview today, and I've heard you say that you review about 80 cases a year. Yes, ma'am. And that you end up taking, what, maybe five or six? Correct. So what are the deciding factors in terms of whether you take a case or not? Maybe I could give you an example. Well, what makes me decide one way or the other is if there is a clear indication that someone blew the standard of care. The first thing I do is get the medical records and I go through those very carefully and I'm looking, was there a suicide assessment? Was it a thorough suicide assessment? Does the word suicide even appear in the records? Is this something that the provider had in his or her mind at all? And then I try to look at how did they formulate uh, risk? Why did they decide to do what they did? Uh, Was there a decision to put someone to a psychiatric hospital? If so, uh, why? If not, why not? Does it look like that the person, that the therapist or the the psychiatrist or the hospital, did did they treat this person with care, with love? Is there compassion in there? Or is it just a fundamental check the blocks, do this, do that, wham, into the psychiatry or into a psychiatric hospital you go and and then when they get in there then they're put on the wrong observation level so there's all kinds of things that i look at but if the documentation is good and i can see that there's compassion there that stops me right in my tracks and that means that's the end of the case there's so that's one way that i look at these cases and the other way is I pay attention to the plaintiff who's calling and what their attitude is and and how that they are going to appear on a witness stand. But mostly I'm looking at the conduct of the defendant, whoever it is that I'm about, about to bring a lawsuit against. And the way I do that is I do it just as if I was bringing a federal indictment. I was a former federal prosecutor because I know when I bring a lawsuit against a psychiatrist and against a a hospital, that that is going to be not a good deal for these people, that it's going to be turning their lives upside down. And I want to make sure not beyond any reasonable doubt, but with no doubt that they did fall below the standard of care. And when I hire my experts, I tell them is I do not want a yes person. I want you to fight with me. I want to make sure I'm doing the right thing here. And I want to make sure that the standard of care was violated and that they had a duty. They breached that duty, which proximately caused the damages. And then if all systems are green, then we file a lawsuit. Do we have any statistics on how often families sue? No. Not that I know of. The ones who would have the best statistics are the insurance companies, and the insurance companies aren't sharing much with me. Because I'm, I'm thinking, we were talking a minute ago about just how devastated families are after the loss of somebody who's committed suicide. And I would think there would have to be some pretty interesting psychological steps between I'm devastated that my sister or husband or wife or child committed suicide to I'm going to sue the hospital or the therapist. And I'm wondering, are there some commonalities that you see that 
kind of push the person from grieving the loss of a loved one to wanting to pursue a litigation? I talk about this with uh, healthcare providers, uh, psychiatrists, clinicians. I do grand rounds across the country trying to teach the people how to avoid the malpractice snare. You know, in other words, what can I do uh, to keep from being sued? And one of the things I tell them is, first of all, you need to stop thinking about getting sued and start thinking about your client. So everything's got to be about your patient. And if you're concentrating on your patient, you're being competent and you're documenting the way you should document, showing how you reached all your decisions, then the likelihood of you getting sued is really reduced. But one of the most important things that I tell them is that, is that when that call comes to your office saying that my loved one has died from suicide and you were the one that was taking care of this person, that first call is very important on whether you're going to get sued or not getting sued. And one of the ways that you can avoid that is what I tell the psychiatrist and the psychologist and whoever, is that it's really wise to make the family member be a team member, a part of the treatment team, so that you're talking with them fairly regularly. If they have any concerns, they can call you and talk to you about that. And the initial visit that you have with your patient, explain to your patient that, you know, what we want to do is make sure that you're going to be better, we want to help you, and we care about you. And I find that the best way to do that is to have a family member, if it's indicated, if it's okay, unless there's a family member that's causing all the problems, is to have that family member uh, a part of the treatment team. So if you have that relationship, they will already know you and they will have been working together with you, and they will be knowing that you are busting your tail to try to save their life and do everything you can. So if everything is uh, copacetic, so to speak, then the likelihood of you getting sued is remote. It's when they get sued is when they don't know who the person is, they have this attitude of, I really can't talk to you because it violates HIPAA, this, that, and everything else. If they come off in a defensive posture, now that person is going to be annoyed. And then that's when Skip Simpson gets his phone call. I can certainly see that. Let me throw out a couple of different scenarios, Skip, and see what you would recommend for family members. So I'm a family member in my I'll just make this up. My brother has a severe mental illness. And part of that mental illness might be at times developing some paranoid delusions that can incorporate family members into that. And so my brother is not necessarily on board with the idea of signing a confidentiality waiver so that, so that the psychiatrist can talk to me or his other siblings. And yet I am seeing a deterioration in in my brother's functioning, or I'm seeing him do some things that in the past have led to him attempting a suicide. What should I do? Your brother's already in treatment or you're trying to talk to Yes, I want to talk, spend some time talking a little bit later about the issue of suicide in psychiatric hospitals. But right right now, let's just say that he's being handled on an outpatient basis. So he has a regularly treating psychiatrist who I have not met or interacted with because my brother has been reluctant for family members to be included as part of his treatment. 
And so he hasn't signed a release of information or anything like that. Exactly, exactly. Okay, I think what I would do in a situation like that, if I was a family member, is I would call the person that I knew that was treating them, and I'd start off the conversation by saying that I understand what the rules are of HIPAA. I am not going to ask you to tell me anything, but I'd like to tell you what it is I've been observing and I want you to know that anytime I have some concerns, I'm going to call you up if that's okay with you and tell you what my concerns are. And so when the psychiatrist is not giving you any information, you're giving him or her information, then we don't have a problem with HIPAA uh, or with confidentiality. But then I would also tell the psychiatrist or whoever the therapist is, is I would like you to the extent you can to work with my brother to try to get him to understand that it would be in his best interest for you to be able to talk to me. Sometimes a psychiatrist, they don't understand HIPAA to begin with. They don't understand confidentiality totally. And so they just don't even ever approach their patient with that concept. So there's a way for a psychiatrist to talk to someone to get them to understand that this is beneficial for them. So what you want that psychiatrist to do is to work on that and not just blow it off. And, you know, maybe the psychiatrist will snap on it and think, you know, that sounds like a smart thing to me that this family member be a part of the team. And I understand that this family member is not a part of the problem. And so I'll give that a shot. So at least the psychiatrist knows that this is something you would like to do. I would bust my tail to try to become a part of the treatment team so that you know what's going on. And, you know, and if you get the psychiatrist to work with you on that, I'd say that if they really try hard, they're going to be able to get that patient to sign for a release of information and not have a confidentiality issue and not a HIPAA issue. I think that's so true, Skip. I don't do therapy anymore, but when I did, I think that that is so true that there are many, many mental health professionals who are so afraid of the confidentiality issues, and there's so much confusion about privilege and about confidentiality that they tend to err on the side of caution, and as a result of that, you might have a grieving loved one calling up and saying, you know, my brother or your patient committed suicide and immediately what happens in that mental health professional's mind is that this grieving family member of this patient that the mental health professional cared about all of a sudden becomes a potential plaintiff and in in that person's mind and they start treating that person that way and it's such a lose deal for everybody all the way around. Yeah I agree with you Joni and I really do think that in my experience HIPAA has been one of the causes of the suicide because the psychiatrist or psychologist did not understand it. If they understood it, then they can make it work a heck of a lot better. We're going to take a short break. You know, preventing suicide is a team effort and every little bit helps. Recent research has shown that screening all emergency room patients, regardless of the reason for their emergency room visit, doubles the number of patients identified as being at risk for suicide. In fact, researchers estimate that just asking three simple questions during emergency room visits could identify more than 3 million additional adults at risk for suicide each year. 
the three simple questions are, over the past two weeks, have you felt down, depressed, or hopeless? Over the past two weeks, have you had thoughts of killing yourself? And have you ever attempted to kill yourself? Spreading the out loud truth from sea to shining sea. AmericaOutloud.com is the voice of liberty and justice for all. This is not a fight of Republican versus Democrat. It's not a fight of rich versus poor, old versus young, man versus woman, gay versus straight. It's not a fight of black lives, blue lives, Hispanic lives, or white lives. This is a battle of good versus evil. It's a fight for the soul of humanity. We are the vision of the voices, America Out Loud Talk Radio. What if a new treatment backed by 17,000 scientific articles was proven to extend our lifespan, protect against terrible diseases like cancer, heart disease, and dementia, make us more attractive and thinner, feel calmer and happier, and boost energy levels, memory, and performance? What would you pay for even the smallest dose of this treatment? The good news is you don't have to pay anything because these are just some of the benefits of a full night of quality sleep. If you're one of the millions of Americans who need better quality sleep, the time to change is now. Until now, most sleep aids haven't worked, but a new easy-to-swallow sleep gel invented by the leading nutrition company Healthy Cell is designed to support all four stages of human sleep to help you fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deep, and wake up refreshed. It's called REM Sleep. To get a free two-night supply of REM Sleep, visit HealthyCell.com sleep. That's HealthyCell.com sleep. Welcome back to The Forensic Psychologist. I'm Dr. Joni Johnston, and our guest today is attorney Skip Simpson. I was reading um, a study recently that found that psychiatry has been typically a low-risk profession in terms of malpractice lawsuits, around 2 to 3%, but that since 2013, there's been a sharp spike in psychiatric malpractice suits. Is that your experience? Are you seeing an increase in those cases? I haven't seen an increase. My business, so to speak, is has been really steady since I first started this. And so I, I've read those same kind of studies that you read. My belief is, is that there are more and more people that are suing mental health providers, particularly where there's a suicide. That's the number one reason why people are getting sued in the mental health field is because of suicide. I had no idea. I really would have thought that therapist malpractice litigation would revolve primarily around sexual exploitation, you know, or inappropriate sexual relationships. Well, about five to 10% of the, of patients from what I understand, but then the uh, insurance companies, they're so aware that this is a major problem that they have in their insurance contracts with their insureds that if you're involved in a sexual allegation of any kind that gets brought up in discovery or anywhere along the way, then we've got a $25,000 cap on that. And so the only thing you could ever, that anyone could ever get out of us would be $25,000. And lawyers know that. And so lawyers aren't going to take that kind of a case. I, I, I want to talk about 
this astounding statistic that I heard you say in another podcast. And that was that 6,400 patients die from suicide in psychiatric hospitals. And that was absolutely mind blowing to me. The average amount of folks that die every year in psychiatric facilities, the educated guess on that is between 1500 to 1600 a year. So that would mean that every day there's six to eight people that die in psychiatric facilities who are put into the facility to be protected from suicide. And I think it's about 6% of the total suicides that occur each year. And so what is happening in these psychiatric hospitals that's leading to patients being able to commit suicide in what is supposed to be a place that protects them from that? Well, what's occurring is that when psychiatric facilities don't abide by the standard of care, and by that I mean that they're not putting their patients on one-to-one or uh, line-of-sight observation, when they don't do that, they instead put them on every 15-minute watch. So on every 15 minute observation level, which means that they only check on the patient every 15 minutes if they do that, because they're usually understaffed and they can't get there at the 15 minute mark. If someone dies or tries to hang themselves in a psychiatric facility, which is the number one way people die in psychiatric hospitals is by hanging. So if someone is able to hang themselves that they become unconscious in about 45 to 60 seconds, maybe sometimes sooner than that, somewhere between 30 seconds and a minute. So if they become unconscious, they're done. There's nothing they, if there's no changing of your mind after you're unconscious, you can't rethink it, you can't do anything. Now, if, and then after two minutes of hanging, then you have irreversible brain damage. And then after about seven to eight minutes, you either die right there on the spot or you die a couple of days later on a ventilator. And so when you put someone on every 15 minute watch, that does nothing to help what happens when someone tries to hang themselves. What happens is that they're giving the tools to do it and they're giving the opportunity to do it. They're by themselves. No one's watching them for 15 minutes. And a lot can be done in 15 minutes. And these patients know that they're being checked every 15 minutes. So when that time comes, then they start doing what they need to do in order to hang themselves. And it's just like clue. I mean, we know who did it, what they did it with, where they did it, where they were going to do it, all those stuff, because the Joint Commission tells the hospitals This is what normally happens. And what normally happens is that people throw a sheet over a bathroom door and hang themselves in that way. And so we know how they do it. And they just keep on doing it. And so I have a a real problem with that. One of the things we don't know is that we don't know for sure how many people are dying in the psychiatric facility. We have estimates but no one is counting that. The CDC is not counting, counting that. The HHS is not counting 
the Joint Commission is not counting. They don't necessarily have to find out that someone died in the hospital. In other words, the hospital has no duty to tell the Joint Commission, even though it's a sentinel event. It's not a well-thought-out system. One of the things I tried to do is talk to CMS, the Center for Medicaid and Medicare Services. They're the ones who come up with all the rules and what should be done and not done. And they also have the money. So most of these hospitals get their money from CMS because it's federally funded. And if CMS set up the rules and they didn't follow those rules and they took their money from them, these hospitals would start marching in line and doing what it is they're supposed to be doing. You would think that just having integrity would be enough, but that's not enough. It's not necessarily the healthcare providers that are the problem. It's the, the bean counters, the management people, the owners who are more interested in making a profit than they are in protecting lives. I know people hear that all the time, but all they have to do is look into the numbers and they'll see that that's true. You know, I'm sure, Skip, that there are people listening to our conversation who are sitting there thinking, you know, these are adults. These are adults who are getting help, getting mental health treatment. Why should a hospital be held accountable or responsible for something that, you know, somebody decides to do? I mean, yes. there's, there's the old adage that, hey, if somebody really wants to kill him or herself, they're going to find a way. How do you respond there to that? A, there is that adage, but that ends up being a myth. So when someone is admitted to a psychiatric facility, that facility is on notice that that person wants to die. And the reason they're put into the hospital is to protect them from that. So they know that that person wants to die or is at risk. Now, what they have to do is observe them on line of sight uh, or one-to-one. I'll give you an example. Johns Hopkins is a hospital that for the last 32 or 33 years has never had an inpatient suicide ever. And they see the sickest people in this country. It's a wonderful hospital and they've had wonderful psychiatrists, but they don't have inpatient suicides. And that's the reason why is because they watch them carefully, they work with the patients and they know that the patients are there to be helped and that's what they do. And as a consequence, they don't have suicides in the, in the facilities. So we come back to that, you know, that's, they decided they wanted to do that. That comes back to that metaphor that I was talking about, that they don't really want to die. What they want to do, they just can't hang on anymore. And what happens is that there's a lot of, it's called psych ache. And they have so much psych ache that they hurt so bad that they just want that to go away. And the way they cause that pain to go away is by dying by suicide. So that's how I answer this question. And you hear it all the time. You if, do hear it all the time. You know, if they want to die, they're going to figure out a way. Well, they can't figure out a way if they're in a psychiatric hospital and they're being watched line of sight one-to-one. And what happens is after they're in the hospital, then they're given benzodiazepines, anti-anxiety medication, antipsychotics, 
things that stabilize them. And so the idea is to get them into the hospital, uh, watch them carefully until you can stabilize them. And then once they're stabilized, now they're going to be ready to be discharged. And then you, walk, you work on continuity of care. So then when I know that a patient's going to be discharged from a psychiatric hospital, then the, the hospital has to work with the next treating physician and they have to talk to each other and know what the problem is. And you've got to make sure that that patient goes right from the hospital within 24 hours to 72 hours, right into a psychiatrist's office or a therapist's office who knows what the problem is. And then a lot of love, com compassion, and care is given to them. And if you can get a patient past their crisis, they may never have another suicidal crisis again, ever. And then if you have that kind of a situation, Abraham Lincoln was someone who had a bipolar disorder and he was also suicidal. He was able to work through that crisis and then become the president and do great things after that. And there are all kinds of people, if you just help them to be able to live, that they will get past that crisis. They may have another crisis again. If they have another crisis again, then that's, those steps are all repeated again. There's gonna be times when you have other conditions like cancer or other things that you can't do anything about, but suicide is something that you can do something about. There's an initiative that's going on now and has been going on for the last five or six, seven years. It's called Zero Suicide. And so that's the goal of a lot of these hospitals in the healthcare industry. And then how do you work towards that? to a large degree, what can be done, but you got to believe it. You got to believe that it can be done. If you're one of these people who thinks this is inevitable, he's going to die, she's going to die, then what you have is a, nor a normalization of deviance. So after a while, it's not that you don't care anymore. It's just that you have the attitude, there's nothing I can do. And when you have the attitude, there's nothing I can do then you work into a normalization of deviance and things just get worse and worse and worse, but no one really notices it. Help me understand the difference from a legal standpoint between an error in clinical judgment versus something that falls below the standard of care or that you would think would be negligent. Give me some examples. You can be exercising what you think is professional judgment, but that judgment is below the standard of care. For example, if you think that having sex with your patient is going to help them, that's your professional judgment, but that professional judgment is below the standard of care. Uh, Let, let's get, for example, let's say that I am a psychologist and I work in a psychiatric facility and there's been a patient who's been on one-on-one -on -one, and this person seems to be doing better. They're responding to medication and all indications clinically from my opinion is that this person is ready to, to step down in terms of their level of observation. And so we authorize the step down and then this person ends up committing suicide. Well, again, I would be looking at the records very carefully. Has this person been properly assessed for suicide? Now, the average stay in a psychiatric hospital is about four to five days. And so what you have to be looking at, is this person better than he was when he came in? Is the patient seem to be stabilized? 
There are a number of things that you look at. Just because a person says, I'm no longer suicidal, doesn't mean they're no longer suicidal. If they have a bunch of risk factors for suicide, for example, then, and they're saying they're not suicidal, you have to be very aware that people can be saying they're not suicidal and they really are suicidal, not because they're lying necessarily, but because that's what they feel. And remember that the suicidal thinking ebbs and flows. And so you have to be looking at the psychotic processes. You have to be looking at whatever other processes are going on. But usually the near-term indicator for suicide is anxiety. So if someone has a lot of anxiety, that's a near-term indicator. So if you give that kind of a patient benzodiazepines and they settle down and now they seem fine, now you can certainly take them off of one-to-one line of sight and then they'll be ready for discharge. And then you have another person right before discharge that does a systematic suicide assessment. There are a number of questions that you go through. A lot of people aren't really good at assessing for suicide. So anyway, if you do a good systematic suicide assessment, then they're discharged, and then they go to an outpatient therapist within 24 or 48 hours, then that person starts working with them. Uh, But your question was, what happens when I think I have utilized my best professional judgment and then they still die from suicide? In order for professional judgment to work as a concept legally, that means in the case law, you have got to make sure you've done all the right assessments and all those kinds of things. But if you haven't done the right assessment and then your professional judgment is ready to go, then professional judgment is not going to be a defense. And I think what I'm also looking to, to talk about is the fact that there are tragic situations where a clinician does everything right and does an accurate suicide assessment and provides treatment and someone still dies by suicide. And I think sometimes there are mental health professionals who get so paralyzed by the fear of that, that they kind of overreact to situations and end up alienating the patient, maybe making the treatment worse because they're so terrified of the legal issues if a patient does commit suicide. Yeah, the, so what I do with these seminars are these grand rounds where I'm trying to take the fear out of practicing is how to avoid the malpractice snare. Remember, I only take four or five, six cases a year. There are a lot of cases that I'm not taking. So when I'm looking at those cases, again, I'm looking to see if everything was done right in my judgment. And if I see that they're really trying to take care of this patient and the patient still ends up dying by suicide, I'm not going to be taking that case. Good morals tells you that you're not going to be taking a case like that. Here's another thing that a clinician can bank on, that before I take a case, if I take a case, it's going to cost me probably somewhere between fifty dollars and $100,000 to prosecute that case. So I am not going to be taking a case unless I know I'm going to win that case, or the odds are extremely high that I'm going to be winning that case. So... So there are a lot of things that should give therapists confidence that they're not going to get sued. There are a lot of safeguards 
to protect that clinician. Another thing that they should uh, get some comfort in is that 80% of malpractice cases are lost. So when a case is filed, 80% of the time, the defendant is going to win that case. So there are a lot of things are in favor of the clinician just not worrying about malpractice, but just concerning themselves with the patient. And if they do that and they do the things that I suggest that they do by being competent and by documenting properly, then I'm certainly not going to sell. We talked a little bit about family members earlier in terms of establishing to the extent possible a relationship with the treating clinician and vice versa. And I'm wondering what recommendations you would have for family members who have a loved one who's going into a psychiatric treatment facility. Are there things that you can do proactively? What kind of communication should you have with that hospital that will at least up the odds that your loved one is going to get the best care and not be the, the case we right. read about in the newspaper of the person who's in the hospital and commits suicide? Well, on my website, on I have a list of things that answers that question, number one, and that's skipsimpson.com. One of the things that I would do is that make sure that that hospital knew that I am here as a family member and would like to be a part of the treatment team. I want to help out, do anything I can. That's one thing. And the other thing is I would ask them, Are, do you have an intention to put my loved one on observation level? And if they say yes, and they of course have to say yes, if the patient's being admitted because they're at risk for suicide, they'd have to say yes to that. Then I would ask them, well, what level of observation are you going to put them on? And they're probably not liking this conversation by now because now they're already being questioned and nothing has happened yet. But an active family member that wants to make sure their loved one gets out of that hospital, right, shouldn't be embarrassed by asking these questions. And a good hospital shouldn't be embarrassed by answering them. And if they said that they're going to put them on every 15-minute watch, I would say, is every 15-minute watch going to be adequate to protect them? And now they're little, they're concerned because you've got a family member who's asking some pretty smart questions. Well, is it the number one way people are going to die by suicide by hanging? When you start really hitting them with those kinds of questions, the odds are that that psychiatrist is going to order one-to-one -one or a line of sight. And if they're not going to do that, I would ask them why. What makes you think he's going to be safe for 15 minutes? Because he's been admitted here because he wants to die. Why are you going to give him 15 minutes to do that? And I would not hesitate to, to talk that way. And I would, I would start off being nice, but you hope you win that little debate there. You hope you win it. Because what happens when they say, well, we're just going to admit him involuntarily and we'll do what we're going to do. They can do that. But again, if you, as a family member, try to approach it reasonably and, and be nice and, and try to get that, you probably won't even be talking to the psychiatrist, 
but to, to whoever you're talking to, maybe it's the director of nursing, maybe it's a social worker, maybe it's someone that says, I'm really concerned about my loved one. Maybe that gets into the chart. That's another thing I would do is I'd say, I want you to put, if you don't mind, I want you to put my concern into the chart. Will you mind doing that? And then say, well, can you just write that in there right now? And then if that's dialed up, maybe someone will do the right thing because they should be doing the right thing anyway. If someone comes into a psychiatric hospital, that's because usually they're either wanting to hurt themselves or hurt someone else, or they did decompensate to such a point that they can't conduct themselves properly in society. So, but it's usually, it's about suicide. And if they're sick enough to be admitted to a psychiatric facility because they want to die, then they're also sick enough to be on one to one or line of sight. We're going to take a quick break. Thank you so much for listening to today's show. And if you ever miss an episode, don't panic. You can find us on Apple, Google, iHeartRadio, Pandora, or Android. Think back to the last time you felt healthy and energized. The best times of our lives occur when we're at the peak of our health, sleeping better, full of energy and focus. We know that fades with age, and you might be feeling the effects of aging as low energy and poor sleep. But it doesn't have to be that way. There haven't been any nutrition systems designed to rejuvenate our bodies as we get older until now. Healthy Cell Pro is the only multinutrient system that impacts the building block of your body, the cell. Created by anti-aging expert and Nobel Prize nominee, Dr. Vincent Giampapa, award-winning Healthy Cell Pro cuts through the complexity of nutrition supplements by simply giving you the purest ingredients, filling dietary gaps to nourish your cells and enhance your quality of life for optimal performance. Visit HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for an exclusive discount or call 844-869-9958. Welcome back to The Forensic Psychologist. I'm Dr. Joni Johnston and our guest today is attorney Skip Simpson. I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit, but I'm wondering if you can think of a case either one that you've been directly involved in or one that you're aware of that really illustrates some of the things you've been talking about in terms of suicide and falling below the standard of care. Unfortunately, that's real easy for me to do. The typical profile of the cases that I accept are patients that have been admitted to a psychiatric facility and they are not on the proper observation level that is that they're on every 15 minute watch and then they're able to hang themselves. That's the typical profile. That's what happens. When you have an inpatient suicide, it's because they weren't being properly watched. They weren't being, you don't even have, when someone comes into a psychiatric facility, you already know that these people are at high risk for suicide. If you do a systematic suicide assessment, you're gonna find out, yes, they are at high risk for suicide. So what happens is that they're not, they're not properly medicated, they're not properly observed, and the environment of care is not safe because there's places in the room that they can hang themselves with. There's no mystery to this. It's not rocket science. It's just plain sad 
when people go into psychiatric facilities to be protected and they die. And every case I see where the patient dies from suicide is because they're on every 15 minute watch. Or one case I had in San Antonio, they were not watched for about five hours and the patient had been hanging in the room for five hours, never watched once. No one walked in one time. What about individual providers? How often do you sue an individual psychiatrist or individual psychologist? You mean like for an outpatient situation? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, rare. That's very rare. When someone is outpatient, they die by suicide. I'll still review the records to see what they were doing or not doing. I want to know, did they ever assess someone for suicide? Is the word suicide even in there? Because suicide just does not come out of the blue. That's another myth that it just comes out of the blue. It doesn't, especially if you're a mental health provider. You know, when someone comes to to a, a therapist that is, say, either a teenager or they're in their 40s or 50s and they have depression, one of the things, you know, the therapist would ask is, and the way they would ask it makes a difference. You could say something to the effect of, listen, Mrs. Smith, people just like you come into my office all the time. And all of them that come into my office who've got depression, have high anxiety, those kinds of things that come in here to see me, every one of them have thought about suicide. When's the last time you thought about suicide? See, and what you've done there is normalize it, that it's okay. It's okay for me to talk about suicide because a lot of people, you know, they've never been able to talk to anyone about suicide. And so then when you talk to them about when's the last time you thought about suicide, well, what did you think? What were those thoughts? What did you do? When you're starting to ask those kinds of questions in a gentle kind of way and making people feel comfortable about it, now that's a good suicide assessment. Now, if someone is at risk for suicide, then you explain, not everyone who's at risk for suicide needs to be hospitalized. It's terrifying for people to be hospitalized. Sometimes people won't admit to suicidality because they're afraid they're going to have to go into a hospital. If they go into a hospital, that's going to hurt them professionally. They're not going to be able to make money anymore. There's all kinds of reasons why you don't want to tell someone about suicide. But what you tell them is this, is that we're going to talk about this. And what I want to do is I want to see you instead of one time every two weeks, I want to see you about three times this week increase in the frequency here until you get to the position that you're better. And then the chances are you'll never have to go to a hospital. And by the way, Joni, if I see a record like that, where people are talking that kind of a way and they're documenting everything, and then that person happens to die by suicide, I'm not going to see that therapist. That's not what's going to happen. But if I see a record that doesn't even have the word suicide in there, um, I've got some problems I still may not sue because an outpatient person, just because that's more of a risky thing. It's a easier call when you're suing someone, a hospital and an inpatient psychiatrist. Outpatient, more difficult, but you still got to look at the records. But this isn't about suing. This is to me. What this is really about is having clinicians 
be able to f- practice without fear so that they know that if they're an outpatient psychiatrist or a clinician or psychologist, if they just do these kinds of things that they should be doing, it's A, unlikely that the patient's going to suicide, and B, if they do, it's highly unlikely they're going to get sued. What are your thoughts about suicide contracts between therapist and and patients? Most people say that's below the standard of care. Mm -hmm. Because suicide contracts, first of all, it's, there's nothing legally binding to that. And I find that usually suicide contracts are more for the protection of the clinician than helping the patient. So the, there are different thoughts about that. But by and large, the Joint Commission, for example, says that suicide contracts are below the standard of care. They're, they're just not safe. But they can be used as in a process of helping to assess someone for suicide. For example, if you're asking someone, would you mind engaging in a suicide contract? And if they say no, now you've got someone that's at higher risk for suicide. If they say yes, then you can still do it, uh, but it doesn't protect you from a lawsuit. That's such a good point, I think, because a suicide contract is a tool as part of a package of treatment. Yes. It's not a substitute for an increased number of visits or contacting a family member to see if there are firearms in the home or some of the other things. And I think you're right. I think sometimes there is this kind of false assumption that if I am sitting down with a person, I'm saying, okay, are you going to kill yourself? And that person says no. And I say, okay, well, sign this suicide contract to make sure that you've doc- we've documented that you're not going to do this somehow can become a substitute for these other things. Right, exactly. And the other thing too is, is always when you've got some, a patient that's at risk for suicide, outpatient, then you've got to do a, uh, a means evaluation. In other words, you've got to find out, are there any guns in the house? Are there any guns in the car? Are there any guns in the trunk of the car? You've got to think of when you're asking questions about means restriction is what they call it is make sure that you're thinking just like a DEA agent would be thinking about where are the drugs, where are the guns, and make sure you ask all these kinds of questions. And that's where a family member really can come in handy too, is that that family member can then, you tell that person where you need to look and make sure there are no guns. Because I've had a number of cases where what happens is the person is discharged from the psychiatric facility too early and then they go home and they find the gun that they knew where it was and they get that and then they kill themselves for that. And so there's another thing is that if, if you think someone has to have family members watching you, if you're a therapist and you think family members need to be watching you thoroughly, you can't do that. You can't put that kind of a burden on a family because if they need to be watched carefully all the time, they need to be in a facility. That is a great message for us to end on because I do think family members play such an important part in care with family members who are depressed or suicidal. And I think it is important for them to have as much information as they can, not only in terms of how they can be an advocate for their loved one's treatment, but also so they can know at what point it's too much for them and they need to get help outside of the family. Exactly. Um, because I absolutely agree with you that there is no way somebody who has a suicidal family member can take on the 
responsibility of watching somebody 24 hours a day. I actually had a friend of mine who, whose wife committed suicide. And for years, she had many, many problems. And she attempted suicide many, many times. And he literally became like the kind of house police and full-time caregiver. And he was constantly locking things up and making sure that she was okay. And, and it just became such an incredibly difficult part of their relationship. And, and I'm not, I'm not sure either one of them were benefited ultimately by that strategy. No, if you've got someone that's at risk for suicide, the whole household is upset and it's just a vicious circle rather than a virtuous circle. So I'd like to leave people with, you know, that are at risk for suicide to know that there is hope. Absolutely. And that is such a powerful message. And the other thing is for the, for anyone who's a care provider, just take it easy. The likelihood of you being sued is remote if you're doing the things that I suggest. And I want everyone to relax, you know, and, and just try to enjoy life if the best they can. Well, thank you so much, Skip, for coming on today. And I'm so appreciative, not only of the work you're doing to make sure that people who need it are getting the kind of care that they need, but also the work that you do to educate mental health providers on making sure they have the tools and the knowledge to make sure that they are providing the best care for their, their clients and their family members. So we'll make sure we have the resources you referenced on your website, on our show, at the link. But again, thank you so much for coming on. You are listening to The Forensic Psychologist. I'm your host, as always, Dr. Joni Johnston, and we will see you next time.